Well, good morning, everyone. Really good to see you all here, and welcome to all who are watching on live stream as well. This morning will probably be more than just my mum, so that's a nice thing. Hi, mum. We're going to turn together this morning to Judges, the book of Judges. I'm going to read from chapter 13 and from chapter 16. Why? Because the final major judge, Samson, has four whole chapters devoted to him. And so we're going to read um, a section from the start of chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to jump to chapter 16, verse 17, and read through to the end of the chapter. So uh, I don't have the page number. Someone give me the page number for Judges 13. 213 is the page number in our Pew Bible this morning. Let's read together then, Judges 13, starting in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then flicking to chapter 16. This child is born, he grows. And then starting in verse 17. Samson told Delilah all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hand. The ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. 
All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol, in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, as we reflect just upon the beginning of this year and the way in which you have have taught us so much from this book of Judges, we're we're grateful uh, for this section of your word and and grateful for for all that you have have shown us in these words. But now again, Lord, as much as in any other week, we come (laughs) in desperate need of your illumining presence again. We come in need of your spirit to lead us into truth so that this time might be worthwhile, that we might not be just wasting our time going through the motions. Would you come and speak, we ask, in the perfect name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. The book of Judges then, when we started out on this series, I I promise you that it would be full of epic battles and disgusting deeds and some shocking violence. I told you that it was a difficult book to read and sometimes an even harder book to apply. Full of despicable people doing deplorable things. It's puzzling, it's primitive. In a word, we summed it up as weird. You remember? And I don't think this book has let us down. Uh, Today, as we reach the end of this series by looking at the sixth of the major judges, Samson, uh, we remember that these judges have been an interesting lot. We had Othniel, the the first of the major judges, who introduced us to that cycle that we've seen again and again as we've worked our way through this book, rebellion and oppression, then repentance, salvation before the judge's death, leading us back into a new season of rebellion. We think of Ehud, remember, who stabbed the fat king and showed us how sin works, promising us so much, then taking everything we have in exchange for oppression but also showing us how God works, the God who works not in spite of our weakness, but through it. David preached on Deborah, who took on this foreign army and showed us what happens when desperate people encounter the sufficiency of our God. We looked at Gideon and saw him pull back the curtain on our own weaknesses and showed us how God's strength is made perfect there. Last week we thought about Jephthah and saw this strange, sinister, evil vow that he made before then appearing in Hebrews 11 and reminding us that there's gospel hope for anyone and everyone. An interesting crew. I think it's fair to say that we wouldn't want any of these judges on our Supreme Court. And now, as we read Samson, we're going to find that it's no different. Picture Samson 
in your mind? What do you see? Close your eyes. What do you see? Perhaps you see this, this vision of this strong, rugged, muscly man. Six-pack biceps ready for war at, at the drop of a hat. A superman whose hair is kryptonite. Tackling God's enemies, even giving his own life for the cause. But then, if you read your way through chapters 13 through 16 of Judges, you begin to wonder if he's a good example for anyone at all. That the strongest man in the Bible also turns out to be one of the weakest men in the Bible. The strongest man in the Bible turns out to be one of the weakest. Yes, he's charismatic, but he's also cocky. He's courageous, but he's also vicious. He's charming, but he's also incorrigible. We see a man who has spades of talent and fritters it all the way as he becomes the Bible's paradigmatic playboy. Samson, Samson, Samson. Set up to star in a heroic saga of faith and patriotism. Samson's life descends into a tawdry soap opera. Too explicit even to be on our daytime TV. In 1939, Winston Churchill said of the Russians, described them famously as a riddle wrapped up in a mystery inside an enigma. And so it is with Samson. So it is with Samson. What lessons does his life have for us? I want to sketch the bones of the story and then draw three applications for us at the end. First of all, though, let's enjoy the story together because the story is fascinating, it's absorbing, it's compelling. Read it all this afternoon. And if you're on live stream, just pause. We'll be here when you get back. Take your time to read through chapters 13 through 16 of this amazing section of God's Word. When you do, or when you read it later this afternoon, you'll see that his story is told really in in three acts. We read of his birth in chapter 13, his life in chapters 14 and 15, and then his death in chapter 16. Let's work our way through these acts briefly. First act of his birth in chapter 13 opens up, verse 1 of chapter 13, the people of Israel again, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Things are once more bleak in Israel. Only now they're worse than they've ever been. Did you notice what was missing as we read those first few verses? No repentance. What are we used to? The people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord delivered them into the hands of their enemies. Then what? The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. That doesn't happen anymore. That doesn't happen in this entire passage. Why? Because the people of Israel are now so far from God that they no longer cry out to him. They've grown accustomed to their servitude, grown accustomed to this foreign rule. They've even become content with it. In chapter 15, we'll read that one of the tribes comes and delivers Samson into the hands of the Philistines. So far have they drifted that that they no longer even desire a relationship with God. But while the people have grown idle, I love this, God is on the move. Why? Because God never gives up on his people. We could stop and spend 15 minutes applying that glorious gospel truth to our hearts. God never gives up on his people. So while they're idle and while they've forgotten about him, he is on the move. And the rest of chapter 13 tells us that there's a plan. 
An angel appears to this young, nameless, barren woman and promises that a child will be born. And no ordinary child, a special child who will, Luke verse 5, begin to save Israel. Doesn't this sound remarkably familiar? Doesn't this sound like another nativity scene with which you're familiar? We check our Bibles to see that we are in Judges, not in fact in Luke. This special child will also grow up in in special circumstances. Again, verse 5, see he is to be a Nazarite to God. This was a vow that was ordinarily taken during a season of intense devotion to or or focus upon God. But Samson is to be a Nazarite for life. Look at verse 7. From womb to the day of his death. His entire life is to be lived with an intense devotion to, an intense uh, focus upon God. And as symbols of this commitment, Nazarites abstained from three things. Their entire for their entire season of their vow, they wouldn't drink any wine, they wouldn't touch any dead bodies, and they would never cut their hair. As symbols of their devotion to God, they never went to the bar, they stayed out the morgue, and they never went to the salon. And that's to be Samson's story for life. Not just for a season, but, but all of his days. And then, at the end of chapter 13, this boy is born. See it there in verse 24? The young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. The Lord blessed him. It's easy to gloss over that phrase because it sounds like a kind of Bible-y, Christian-y phrase, you know, Lord bless them. You know that said of no other judge? There's something special about this child. And already, look at verse 25. You see it there? Already as a child, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. What a fantastic start. Act 1 is amazing. All of a sudden we get angels appearing, barren women having children, and Nazarite vows for entire lives, this a child beginning to, to grow, and this child being blessed by the Lord and the Spirit of God stirring in him. It's an amazing start, a fantastic start. But then comes Act 2 in his life. Again, broadly told through chapters 14 and 15, through a series of stories, each of which is, is punctuated with acts of great strength on Samson's part but also with uh, desperate displays of, of, of weakness on Samson's part. His life story is one of strength and of weakness. We see his strength in a number of places. Look at verse 6 of chapter 14. How is this for a display of strength? Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore a lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Now, I've got to be honest. I don't know how one tears a young goat, okay? <laughs> Um, I'm not exactly sure how that goes down. But I do know that it's pretty impressive to take down a lion with your bare hands. When we went to the uh, missions trip to Kenya and Tanzania this past summer, we were able to take a couple days of safari and you would drive around and you would come across these lions just sitting there looking majestic. And even though you're inside a vehicle and even though you're perfectly safe, you feel You feel afraid. Sort of being in the presence of an animal that is so powerful, let alone imagining kind of jumping out and, and taking this thing on. An incredible feat of strength as Samson is able to tear this lion apart. Second feat of strength, look at verse 19 of, of chapter 14. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him again and he strikes down 
30 men at once, takes on all comers, and having killed each and every one of them, he then takes their wardrobes so that he can pay off a bet. Verse 14 of chapter 15, again the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and he kills not 30 men but a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Verse 3 of chapter 16, he tears up a city gate and carries this huge structure some 40 miles away. Again and again and again we see pictures of, of great strength. But we also get these pictures of weakness. We see him break every aspect of his Nazarite vow. He was told never to drink. He throws a drinking party that lasts for a week. He was told never to touch any, any, dead, any dead thing. He touches the lion and how many Philistines? He was told never to cut his hair, but he gives the secret away so that his head is shorn. We see his weakness in the inappropriate relationships he has with, with multiple women. You can actually structure Samson's story around the relationships he has appropriately first with his mother, but then with this Philistine woman in chapter 14, with this prostitute in chapter 16, with Delilah in chapter 16 as well. More generally, he's painted as being self-absorbed. He ignores wise counsel. He overestimates his own cleverness. He relies on his own strength. He forgets about God, and he's altogether quite a distasteful character. When you read your way through these chapters, in many ways, his life fails to live up to the fantastic start. And that takes us all to Acts 3 and his death in chapter 16. Worn down by Delilah, that nagging seductress, he reveals the secret of his strength. And the Philistines' response is merciless. See it there in verse 21? What do they do? They, they scoop out his eyes. They bind him in shackles. They throw him in prison. They make him grind grain, the work of a slave. It looks like we've reached the end of the line for Samson. It looks like there's no way back. It looks like the curtain is closing on his story, but God's not finished with him yet. Look at verse 22 of chapter 16. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. The rest of the chapter, the Philistines throw this huge party and it's one big celebration to give praise to Dagon, their God, praising him for giving them victory over Samson. Samson is wheeled out as entertainment. And in the midst of it all, Samson from somewhere has enough faith to call out for one more divine empowering and placed between the pillars of the temple. He calls out for strength and the obscene party reaches a premature and quite dramatic conclusion as God acts literally bringing the house down. Killing all that are inside, killing all that were on the roof as well. And so in his death, Samson wins his greatest victory. You see it there in verse 30 of chapter 16. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Three acts then. His birth, his life, his death. That's the story of Samson. Read the story of Samson. Learn the story of Samson and love the story 
of Samson. It's an amazing narrative contained for us in these four short chapters. But, but what are we to learn from it? What are we to take away from it? Especially as we conclude this, this series in the book of Judges. There are lots of things we could say, but I'm, I'm sure we're meant to look in at least three directions. Meant to learn one thing from Samson, one thing from Israel, and one thing from God uh, contained in these chapters. Let's look at these three things together. First thing I'm sure we're meant to see from Samson is the danger of doing what's right in your own eyes. And that's been a theme again and again throughout the book of Judges. The danger of doing what's right in your own eyes. The problem is summed up for us in chapter 14. If you look at verse 3. Samson marries a Philistine woman against the wishes of his parents. Saying she is right. What? In my eyes. She's right in my eyes. Never mind the fact that she's wrong in God's eyes. She's right in, in my eyes. And isn't this approach consistent? Ever so consistent with modern thinking. It's continually asserted that only you can decide what's right and what's wrong for you. Only you can decide what counts is what you believe in your heart, what's right in your own eyes. It's a contemporary cultural heresy to disagree with the personal view of another. And yet, common sense, of course, contradicts this. If truth is only determined by your own eyes, how can we ever tell ISIS they're wrong to behead Christians? But of course, scripture and common sense don't always have the impact on us that they should. Milton wrote an epic poem on the story of Samson. That's another thing you should read this afternoon epic poem on the life of Samson and in that he has the Israelite chorus sing to Samson O mirror of our fickle state O mirror of our fickle state we too face the same danger as Samson of of doing what's right in our own eyes how does this play out in your life I've seen it play out in at least three ways in my own. First of all, there are areas in my life that I just haven't even stopped to consider what God's will might be. It's not necessarily a kind of rejection of what God has said. I just haven't stopped to pray about it for a second. And so make decisions about um, plans, about finances, about schools, about what's going on in the day-to-day routine of life without taking the time to consider how I might see these things through the Lord's eyes. Second way this plays out in my life is, is areas where I'll, I'll justify sin. You know how easy it is, right, for us to, to justify? Um, I mean, the sins that we, we would do this would be materialism, worry, bitterness, pride. Excusing ourselves for seeing the things the way we do for, for one reason or another. Third way I've seen this play out in my own life is just areas in life where I know I'm not following God's will. Because <laughs> we know this, right? You know, you know all, all your sins aren't just mistakes, right? It's not just like, oh, I did that, but I, didn't really, I really didn't mean to. It's, no, there, there is active rebellion in our hearts where we're actively doing things that we know we ought not to be doing, but we are. Why do we do them? Why do you sin? Because we want to. Because it seems right in our eyes. 
And I wonder what those areas are for you. Areas of your life that you know you're not following the Lord in. That you know you're not following his will for your life. The God of grace calls us to see things his way. The danger of doing what's right in our own eyes. Second lesson, this time a lesson from Israel. And it's the danger of becoming just like the world around The danger of becoming just like the world around. Remember we said how bad things had become in Israel. So far from God that they no longer cry out to him even for relief. They have become accustomed to their servitude. They're even content with it. And now they find themselves virtually indistinguishable from the surrounding nations. And there's just this danger in the Christian life whereby you know you you can lose your spiritual capacity. So in the same way that the the Israelites lost their spiritual capacity, going from a people who would cry out to the Lord to a people who who would no longer cry out to the Lord, it's kind of like, you know, you get yourself in great shape, okay? And then for six weeks you just sit on the couch and eat chips, right? I'm one of those guys, I'm a, a, that wasn't a theoretical example. (laughs) I get in shape and out of shape with impressive speed, okay? And I will, I will tackle both with endeavor, right? Um, and what happens when you sit on the couch? If you sit on the couch for six weeks to eat chips and then try to do the run you did six weeks ago, it will not go well. You will see your chips again, okay? <laughs> but why? Because you, you lose your physical capacity. And in the same way, it's possible for us to lose our spiritual capacity. The Bible often talks about this in terms of having a hard heart. Do not think that you can mock God by continuing in your sin and that there will be no consequences for it. That the day will come where you know in the back of your mind that you will put that behavior aside, you will stop that that pattern of thinking and return to him. You may lose your spiritual capacity to do so. You may find yourself like the Israelites no longer crying out to God. You may find yourself in a position that things become more bleak than you thought. For us, is there more world in the church than there is church in the world? That's the question. More world in the church than there is church in the world. Has that line between hard work and making an idol of work been crossed? Has that line between loving your family and making an idol of your family been crossed? This passage challenges us to self-examination. A self-examination, viewing our lives through the lens of Scripture that we might not become just like the world around. Third, final thing in closing. A lesson from Samson, a lesson from Israel. And thirdly, a lesson from God. And it's the same lesson we've seen again and again throughout our series and makes it an appropriate point to conclude on that God is the God who saves by grace. And you think... We knew that. Well, then let's rejoice in it. God is the God who saves by grace. We see this in all three acts of Samson's story. In his birth, the people are idle, but God is on the move. He never gives up on his people. He is planning a deliverer for them. And in this, in acting before Samson is even born, he shows us that salvation is not just an ad hoc affair. It's not a kind of band-aid approach. It's it's not just a, a piece of divine crisis management. Like Peter says of Jesus, 1 Peter 1 verse 20, Jesus was 
foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. God is at work before we even look to him. He is active in planning and indeed executing salvation by grace before it's even dawned on us sometimes that we even need it. This principle is alive and well in his birth, but also in his life. See again and again and again how God has ruled and overruled Samson's failure in order to deliver his people. Samson makes one mistake. The Lord acts through it. Samson does a second stupid thing. The Lord acts through it. Samson does a third act of rebellion. What does the Lord do? Continues his plan of salvation through these very acts of stupidity, showing us that his plan is so sovereign that he doesn't have to just navigate round our sin, but can even execute his perfect plan through it. We see in his birth, we see in his life, but perhaps most of all, we see it in his death. As we read that passage, did you, did you pick up on how Christ-like Samson's death is? How Christ-like Samson's death is. Both Samson and Christ are betrayed by someone who acted as a friend, Delilah and Judas. Both are handed over to Gentile oppressors. Both are tortured and chained. Both are put on public display to be mocked. Both die with outstretched arms. Both appear completely struck down before crushing their enemies. Both save alone with no army to support them. You know, even Gideon had his his 300. Samson stands alone as Christ stands alone. But there is, of course, one crucial difference. One crucial difference between the death of Samson and the death of Christ. Because with Samson's death and his burial, his rule is over and his story is finished. But with Christ's death and burial, his rule is is just beginning and the story is just getting started. Samson's Christ-likeness points us to something and someone who is more than Christ-like. Even Christ. You're Christ. There's danger in doing what's right in our own eyes. There's danger in becoming just like the world around. But there's hope, great hope, in following the God who saves And so Samson takes us to the conclusion of our series and we conclude in the same way that we started by remembering that we need a leader who's greater than any of the judges. We need a leader who will not just be a judge but the judge. All the other judges brought peace but their peace did not last. Why? Because they did not last. And so we're told of our need of a leader who will secure our obedience by living forever. And we have one even though he died. And so this morning, the book of Judges comes to us. And it says, it says, come now let us reason together. (laughs) Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white. Like what? (laughs) Like snow. There's a strange tendency for us as believers in Jesus Christ to grasp hold of this gospel, this gospel that is of sheer grace, and to have moments of clarity, but then just to to lose it again. 
And Judges has been, has been clear with us from beginning to end that it, salvation is grace, it's grace, it's grace, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And yet so often we take this gospel, we take this grace, we take this Jesus, and we feel like we need to do other things to somehow really make God pleased with us. When you drive home today, look at the snow that's been piled up on the site. What, what does it look like? This beautiful white snow has turned to slush and muck and grime, and it, it's ugly. And that's, <laughs> that's a good picture of salvation when we try to add to it. Okay? Jesus doesn't say, though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them like slush, as you try hard. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Let's pray together. Father, you're the God who saves the God who saves completely and completely by grace so that even though we are rebellious, even though um, we do what's right in our own eyes, even though we're often indistinguishable from the world around, you have been at work before our birth, even in our lives and through the death of your son to give us grace, sheer grace, that we might be safe in your arms as your children. So thank you for this book of Judges and for the way in which it has is, it is taught us of your son Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that this gospel of grace would not be a thing that we just get our hands on and then lose so quickly. That we wouldn't add slush to the snow of our salvation. But we'd rest and celebrate and enjoy his goodness and his goodness alone. These things we pray in his perfect name. Amen.